Chapter twenty three of Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal by Sarah J. Richardson. Chapter twenty three Flight and Recapture. Four happy weeks I enjoyed unalloyed satisfaction in the bosom of this charming family. It was a new thing for me to feel at home, contented and undisturbed, to have every one around me treat me with kindness and even affection. I sometimes feared it was too good to last. Mrs. Brainard, in particular, I shall ever remember with grateful and affectionate regard. She was more like a mother to me than a mistress, and I shall ever look back to the time I spent with her as a bright spot in the otherwise barren desert of my life. Better, far better would it have been for me if I had never left her. But I became alarmed and thought the convent people were after me. It was no idle whim, no imaginary terror, I had good cause to fear, for I had several times seen a priest go past, and gaze attentively at the house. I knew him at the first glance, having often seen him in Montreal. Then my heart told me that they had traced me to this place, and were now watching a chance to get hold of me. Imagine if you can my feelings. Had I suffered so much in vain? Would they be allowed to take me back to those fearful cells where no ray of mercy could ever reach me? I could not endure the thought. Frightened and almost beside myself, I resolved to make an effort to find a more secure place. I therefore left those kind friends in the darkness of night, without one word of farewell and without their knowledge. I knew they would not allow me to go if they were apprised of my design. In all probability they would have ridiculed my fears and bade me rest in peace. How could I expect them to comprehend my danger when they knew so little of the machination of my foes? I intended to go further into the state, but did not wish to have anyone know which way I had gone. It was a sad mistake, but how often in this world do we plunge into danger when we seek to avoid it? How often fancy ourselves in security when we stand upon the very brink of ruin. I left Mr. Brainard's in the evening and called upon a family in the neighborhood whose acquaintance I had made, and whom I wished to see once more, though I dared not say farewell. I left them between the hours of nine and ten and set forward on my perilous journey. I had gone but a short distance when I heard the sound of wheels and the heavy tread of horses' feet behind me. My heart beat with such violence it almost stopped my breath, for I felt they were after me. But there was no escape, no forest or shelter near where I could seek protection. On came the furious beasts, driven by no gentle hand. They came up with me, and I almost began to hope that my fears were groundless. When the horses suddenly stopped, a strong hand grasped me, a gag was thrust into my mouth, and again the well-known box was taken from the wagon. 
Another moment and I was securely caged, and on my way back to Montreal. Two men were in the wagon, and two rode on horseback beside it. Four men to guard one poor nun. They drove to Mount Bly, where they stopped to change horses, and the two men on horseback remained there, while the other two mounted the wagon and drove to Sorel. Here the box was taken out and carried on board a boat, where two priests were waiting for me. When the boat started, they took me out for the first time after I was put into it at St. Albans. Three days we had been on the way, and I had tasted neither food nor drink. How little did I think when I took my tea at Mr. Brainard's the night I left, that it was the last refreshment I would have for seven days. Yet such was the fact. And how little did they think, as they lay in their quiet beds that night, that the poor fugitive they had taken to their home was fleeing for life, or for that which to her was better than life. Yet so it was. Bitterly did I reproach myself for leaving those kind friends as I did, for I thought perhaps if I had remained there, they would not have dared to touch me. Such were my feelings then. But as I now look back, I can see that it would have made little difference whether I left or remained. They were bound to get me, at all events, and if I had stopped there until they had despaired of catching me secretly, they would undoubtedly have come with an officer and accused me of some crime as a pretext for taking me away. Then, had anyone been so far interested for me as to insist on my having a fair trial, how easy for them to produce witnesses enough to condemn me. Those priests have many ways to accomplish their designs. The American people don't know them yet. God grant they never may. On my arrival at the nunnery, I was taken down the coal grate and fastened to an iron ring in the back part of a cell. The archbishop then came down and read my punishment. Notwithstanding the bitter grief that oppressed my spirit, I could not repress a smile of contempt as the great man entered my cell. I remembered that before I ran away, my punishments were assigned by a priest, but the first time I fled from them, a bishop condescended to read my sentence and now his honour the archbishop graciously deigned to illumine my dismal cell with the light of his countenance, and his own august lips pronounced the words of doom. Was I rising in their esteem, or did they think to frighten me into obedience by the grandeur of his majestic mien? Such were my thoughts as this illustrious personage proceeded slowly and with suitable dignity to unroll the document that would decide my fate. What would it be? Death? It might be for aught I knew, or cared to know. I had by this time become perfectly reckless, and the whole proceeding seemed so ridiculous I found it exceedingly difficult to maintain a demeanour sufficiently solemn for the occasion. But when the fixed decree came forth, when the sentence fell upon my ear that condemned me to seven days' starvation, 
It sobered me at once. Yet even then the feeling of indignation was so strong within me, I could not hold my peace. I would speak to that man if he killed me for it. Looking him full in the face, which, by the way, I knew was considered by him a great crime, I asked, Do you ever expect to die? I did not, of course, expect an answer, but he replied with a smile, Yes, but you will die first. He then asked how long I had fasted, and I replied three days. He said, You will fast four days more, and you will be punished every day until next December, when you will take the black veil. As he was leaving the room, he remarked, We do not usually have the nuns take the black veil until they are twenty-one, but you have such good luck in getting away, we mean to put you where you can't do it. And with this consoling thought he left me, left me in darkness and despair, to combat as best I could the horrors of starvation. This was in the early part of winter, and only about a year would transpire before I entered that retreat from which none ever returned. And then to be punished every day for a year. What a prospect! The priest came every morning with his dark lantern to look at me, but he never spoke. On the second day, after my return, I told him if he would bring me a little piece of bread, I would never attempt to run away again, but would serve him faithfully the rest of my life. Had he given it to me, I would have faithfully kept my word. But he did not notice me, and closing the door, he left me once more to pass through all the agonies of starvation. I remember nothing after that day, whether I remained in the cell the other two days, or was taken out before the time expired, I do not know. This much, however, I do know. As a general rule, a nun's punishment is never remitted. If she lives, it is well. If she dies, no matter. There are enough more, and no one will ever call them to an account for the murder. But methinks I hear the reader ask, did they not fear the judgment of God and a future retribution? In reply, I can only state what I believe to be the fact. It is my firm belief that not more than one priest in ten thousand really believes in the truth of Christianity, or even in the existence of a God. They are all infidels or atheists, and how can they be otherwise? It is the legitimate fruit of that system of deceit which they call religion. Of course, I can only give this as my opinion, founded on what I have seen and heard. You can take it, reader, for what it is worth, believe it or not, just as you please. But I assure you I have often heard the nuns say that they did not believe in any religion. The professions of holiness of heart and parity of life so often made by the priests they know to be nothing but a hypocritical pretense 
and their ceremonies they regard as a ridiculous farce. For some time after I was taken from the cell, I lay in a state of partial unconsciousness, but how long I do not know. I have no recollection of being taken upstairs, but I found myself on my bed in my old room and on the stand beside me were several cups, vials, etc. The abbess who sat beside me occasionally gave me a teaspoonful of wine or brandy and tried to make me eat. Ere long my appetite returned, but it was several weeks before my stomach was strong enough to enable me to satisfy in any degree the cravings of hunger. When I could eat, I gained very fast, and the abbess left me in the care of a nun, who came in occasionally to see if I wanted anything. This nun often stopped to talk with me when she thought no one was near, and expressed great curiosity to know what I saw in the world, if people were kind to me, and if I did not mean to get away again if possible. I told her I should not, but she replied, I don't believe that. You will try again, and you will succeed yet, if you keep up good courage. You are so good to work. They do not wish to part with you, and that is one reason why they try so hard to get you back again. But never mind, they won't get you next time. I assured her I should not try to escape again, for they were sure to catch me, and as they had almost killed me this time, they would the next. I did not dare to trust her, for I supposed the superior had given her orders to question me. I was still weak, so weak that I could hardly walk when they obliged me to go to the kitchen to clean vegetables and do other light work, and as soon as I had sufficient strength to milk the cows and take the care of the milk, they punished me every day in accordance with the bishop's order, and sometimes I thought more than he intended. I wore thorns on my head and peas in my shoes, was whipped and pinched, burnt with hot irons and made to crawl through the underground passage I have before described. In short, I was tortured and punished in every possible way until I was weary of my life. Still they were careful not to go so far as to disable me from work. They did not care how much I suffered if I only performed my daily task. There was an underground passage leading away from the nunnery to a place which they called Providence in the south part of the city. I do not know whether it is a school or a convent or what it is but I think it must be some distance from what I heard said about it. The priest often spoke of sending me there, but for some reason he did not make me go. Still, the frequent reference to what I so much dreaded kept me in constant apprehension and alarm. I have heard the priest say that underground passages extended from the convent in every direction for a distance of five miles, and I have reason to believe the statement is true. But these reasons I may not attempt to give. There are things that may not even be alluded to, and if it were possible to speak of them, who would believe the story? End of chapter 23